Taxing billionaires isn't going to cure the fact that most government services are crap. Dominic, is tax illegal theft? Uh, well, it's legal theft. <laughs> um, that's the great moral argument. Is taxation a form of theft or is it the price we pay for a civilised society? And the uh, answer's probably somewhere in between the two. So how did it start then? Because I understand a few hundred years ago, most of the taxes we have in the current form didn't exist. Um, a lot of them didn't. Income tax didn't really exist. But the evidence is that, sadly, that taxation is as old as history itself. Uh, there's never been a civilization without some form of taxation. Um, there have been examples of civilizations where taxation was voluntary. Uh, ancient Greece, for example. But uh, today, it's very, very, very compulsory. And it's taken by force. If you don't pay, you go to prison. In many cases, it's taken by stealth. Uh, if you think of stealth, inf um, you know, so many hidden taxes, even in a way income tax uh, is taken by stealth. In a, inflation is obviously taken by stealth, but income tax is taken by is stealth in the sense that many of us have it deducted at source uh, before we've even actually received the money in our hands. So yes, and um, it's also taken without choice. Uh, in that you can't choose which taxes you want to pay and which you don't. In most cases, most taxes are... I mean, you could say you don't buy that product and you don't pay VAT. In that sense, there's a choice. But in most cases, um, it's not optional. It's compulsory. So I'd love to dig into this. Sure. But I want to start because you're... I know you've written multiple books, but one of them is called Daylight Robbery. And that gives one somewhat of an inkling of the way you feel about tax. So why did you call your book Daylight Robbery and what is Daylight Robbery? Well, we tend to think that Daylight Robbery means brazen theft. Um, but there's actually quite a few arguments about where the origins of the, uh, of the word are. And some people think it dates back to the highwaymen. Um, you know, think of Adamant and all, you know, uh, of uh, Dick Turpin and all that. But the more likely origin is that it refers to the window tax. And, um, you know, we've got lovely big windows behind us here, but once upon a time, we would have had to have paid lots and lots of tax uh, on these windows. And so to avoid paying tax on windows, people blocked up their windows or new houses were built without windows altogether. And so people lost their daylight. Now, in those days, there was no electricity. Uh, lamps you, you, you lit with tallow candles or in some cases oil lamps um, but so to lose your daylight was no small sacrifice and in fact it made people ill because in the uh, industrial revolution the damp cramped windowless dwellings added to the spread of cholera typhus and all those various diseases that that hurt the poor and like a lot of taxes uh, it was meant it was intended for the rich but it hurt the poor the most but anyway, when it was debated in Parliament, you know, and they tried to get rid of it for 50 or 60 years, they tried to get rid of it. But when it was when they debated in Parliament, um, MPs were believed to have cried out daylight robbery. But anyway, it was eventually got rid of and we replaced it with income tax. <laughs> Is that any better? Well, yes and no. Depends. I mean, you've probably heard of the tithe which is this idea that you give a tenth of what you earn to your church. 
But it, the tithe goes all the way back to ancient Mesopotamia, predates the, the Old Testament. And it's thought it was a tithe because it was a tenth. We have ten fingers. It's an easy number to calculate. But uh, it's a, in, those, in olden times, people didn't necessarily handle money in the way that they do today. So you would give a tenth of your labour or a tenth of your produce. Um, and so that's basically a form of income tax. Um, but today, income tax is you know, 45% for higher earners with the debasement of money that's going on. More and more people are falling into that higher earner bracket. Um, uh, but there's also national insurance, which is a form of income tax. And so one way or another, over the course of your lifetime, roughly 50% of everything you ever earn will be taken from you in taxes. And of that, roughly 50% of government revenue around the world derives from income tax. It's the single biggest tax. Um, as I say, it's compulsory. And you look at the life of the medieval serf, who was a descendant of the slaves, the Roman slaves, and he would give half of his week to his landlord uh, and half of his week he, got to keep, he was allowed to till his own little bit of soil. So 50%, it's the same amount today. So in that respect, obviously life's got a lot better because we have many more things and uh, we're empowered by technology. We're able to do many more things than we were ever previously able to do. But in terms of time taken, uh, our lot is not that different from that of the medieval serf. Although, as I say, working conditions have improved. <laughs> right. I'm going to bring up something that I sure. published a couple of weeks ago. It might take me a few seconds to find it. But I did this little rant on social media, on tax. Because, sure. Because I probably thought the same as you, that maybe about 50% of our income is taxed. But then if you're a business owner, you've got, okay, that is an added tax, but there's still that. Then you've got corp tax, which is going up from 19 to 25 business rates, pension contributions. And then you look at everything that you buy that's got that on. You buy a car, it's got that on. You've got your car tax or your company car tax, yada, yada, yada. Fuel when, duty. Fuel duty, which is what? A, about a fixed, it's about 40% at the moment of fuel. I think that it may, may be slightly different, but it, roughly 75% of the price you pay at the pump is taxes in one form or other. And then alcohol can be 80-odd percent tax. Cigarettes? Cigarettes, 82% tax. You've done your homework. <laughs> because it's pissing me off, I'm just going to say. I think, I don't know. That's why I, I, I usually lose that, use that figure of 50%. Mm. It's probably slightly more. Mm. But you go to people, okay, what's the most expensive thing you ever buy in your life? Probably your house. That's what everyone says. And you even said it in the context of this conversation, but the most expensive purchase you ever make in your life is by far and away your government. By far and away. But what are we getting for what we buy? <laughs> At least I get something for my house. A lot of bureaucracy. Yeah, because Peter Schiff said to me, he said that he thinks the governments are too bloated and they've got far too many people employed. Um, in fact, didn't um, they just announced the cutting of 91,000 civil servant jobs, which they built up from 2016. What do you think? I'm going to come back to all this. We've got a few threads yeah. opening, so everyone, you know, stay listening. This is going to go deep. But do you think the government are too bloated? There's too many of them. They're taking too much money. 
Yeah, 100%, I think that. It's too bloated by about five times. Really? Mm -hmm. If you look at government as a percentage of GDP at the turn of the 20th century, in other words, around about 1900, tax was about 10%. In fact, in the UK, it was about 8%. And, wow. uh, you know, the famous quote from AJP Taylor is that an Englishman could walk through life and barely notice the existence of the state except for the post office and the policeman. You could go anywhere in the world without a passport. And, um, you know, in a, in a way, taxation is a measure of freedom. Um, and so, you know, if you have an anarchy with total freedom and no government, you have zero taxes. And at the other extent, if you have a totalitarian regime, North Korea or something, where, you know, North Koreans don't own any of our, their own labour. We own about 50% of ours, so we're sort of somewhere in the middle of the two extremes. But government's getting bigger all the time. And don't forget debt, which is a tax on the future. You know, all these uh, debt obligations, they spend way more than they take in in taxation. That's going to have to be paid off well, one is it way though? or another. Is it, though? Because they used to basically well, they, be neutral and if there was in a deficit then they'd make that deficit up but it just seems it's deficit deficit well they'll deficit. pay it by debasing the currency but it's still you're still paying by losing so you mean power. print more money yeah quantitative easing yeah and um so but yeah the so that's where we are in the, in the two extremes and in my opinion um most government services could be better provided to a much higher standard uh, at a much lower cost for a much broader section of people if there was no government involved. So you mean if most of government was privatised or do you just mean that a lot of what they do just isn't required? Well, I'm very wary of using that word privatised and this is no criticism of you. Oh, no, please. But when Feel you free see, to criticise me. <laughs> but when you see something like the trains where a private company is ordered, uh, is, is given a, um, a state monopoly, then the private company will milk it for all it's worth. And that's why you see such ridiculously high train fares. If it was totally liberalised and other people could lay down tracks and there was competition for the thing, the, the cost of rail travel would, would fall dramatically. And so privatisation often ends up with this sort of unhealthy half state, half private, which is the most crony capitalist rotten situation of the lot. Um, what was it? I, I played football regularly on a Thursday evening in this uh, football pitches down in Brixton. And it was owned by the council at one stage. But at, at some point, the council sold it off. And there's like three different companies in charge of these football pitches. And one company is responsible for the maintenance of the pitches. So they have to relay, relay the AstroTurf when it, you know, tears up or whatever. There's another company responsible for the booking. And there's another company responsible. I don't even know what the other company's responsible. But there's three companies running what is essentially a pretty simple business. You've got some football pitches, you rent them out, you make sure they're in decent condition. But for some reason, the council in their wisdom, when they sold it off, sold it off to these three different companies. And, it's, and, not, and I was just going, and it's hopeless. We've been playing in the game for 25 years. And always there's some reason or another why our game gets cancelled and it's it's always it's just so badly run uh, it's so inefficient and it's so expensive for what it is and it's just like the railways when they sold off the railways you had one guy responsible for maintaining the track one guy running the trains one guy responsible for something else and and there's always something that's sort of in the middle of where the two responsibilities lie and that never gets fixed 
And I just don't believe that would happen in a, in a proper free market environment. So I'm quite purist about it, but but so you, you know you if you look at something like markets. education, oh, hundred percent. If you okay. if you look at something like edu- education, um, you know people think we became literate as a result of education becoming compulsory in the sort of late nineteenth century. But the proof was that all through the industrial revolution, as people came from the fields in the country into the cities to work, and then gradually they earned money. And they were, we were talking about a time when money was sound under the gold standard. So the purchasing power of money increased over the course of the 19th century. So salaries in real terms actually went up rather than down. But the first thing people spend their money on after they've, you know, clothed themselves, provided shelter and fed themselves is self-improvement. And we went over the course of 50 or 60 years from, uh, you know, course of two generations, basically, from being mostly illiterate to being something like 95 percent literacy, literacy long before it ever became compulsory by the state. People go, oh, you know, today we have to have state education because otherwise people wouldn't be able to read or write. Well, I'm sorry, the free market, the Internet, has provided the most powerful <coughs> learning tool uh, in the form of the Internet ever created in all human history. And the idea that people are illiterate in this day and age today, when we've got phones and iPads and computers and words around us all the time, you know, then it's just rubbish. And so, you know, even education would be, you know, people go, well, we would, people, we wouldn't have education. We would. Um, we just wouldn't have it provided by the state, and it would be much better and much cheaper. So yes, I'm a big, big free marketeer person. Okay, well, I'm going to talk about that in a moment. I hadn't yeah. got it on my list, but I am fascinated by capitalism. And I'm, I'm probably, I think capitalism is the best system we've created, but I think it's imperfect. Um, but I want to go back to the There's government. There's no such thing as perfection. That is very true. <laughs> uh, except my wife. My wife is perfect. Just and my substack letter. <laughs> Which we'll also talk about soon. Um, so what services that the government provide or use our money to fund do you think aren't required? Well, it's it's uh, heresy to say it, but I believe the NHS is not the best means to provide the best possible healthcare to the most possible people for the lowest possible price. I've already droned on about state education. If I go away to a Bitcoin conference and I start talking to all the anarcho-capitalist nut jobs, I come away thinking that we should have no government at all and uh, the free market can do everything better and there's certainly a case for that. But probably at the end of the day I'm what you'd call a classical liberal or a minichist and I think the government should be rather something like 10% of GDP, a bit like Adam Smith used to argue, you know, look after the defence of the nation, police and maybe infrastructure, uh, roads and so on. But I don't even think we need government to build roads. It's always private contractors that build roads anyway. It's just the government that pays for them. But um, so, yeah, I, I in most cases, uh, people acting out of their own self-interest in a vol- voluntarist society would but result in better um, outcomes than, than state. How has the government then got so bloated and how have the taxes got so high? Wars, debasement of currency, largely it all started it all started with the national insurance act just before world war one then world war one we only 
were able to go to war for as long as we did because we came off the gold standard, same with France and Germany. If we'd all stayed on the gold standard, the war would have had to end when the gold ran out, but because they went to fiat standard and printed the money, that war then went on and on and on. Then after that war, the government had a responsibility to to make good after the damage that had been done, to look after all the families who'd lost loved ones and so on. And then, you know, the First World War led to the Second World War and we've just seen, you know, it just sort of spiralled and spiralled and spiralled. And I'm a big believer in the adage, fix money, fix the world. And um, yeah, tax also makes war possible, but war also makes tax possible. We, income tax never hit every man until World War One. It was only during World War One that every man started paying income tax and indeed every woman. As women went into the workforce, they too started paying income tax. And the irony is, um, one of the key justifications why women got the vote was that women now paid tax and therefore they should have a vote. And, you know, one of the things I argue in my book is that if you look at any great event in history, somewhere underneath it, you will find some kind of tax story without which that event would never have happened in the way that it did. And once you start to look at the world through the prism of taxation, loads and loads becomes clear. But every war in history was paid for by tax. Every conquest was about taking control of the tax base, the land, the labour, the produce, the profit. Every revolution was a rising up against some kind of injustice perpetrated by the tax system. Every religion, you know, the difference between God and king and ruler. Most religions are a system of rule. They don't, they don't, wouldn't exist without taxation. Mary and Joseph were only in Bethlehem to pay taxes. When Jesus was born, if Caesar Augustus hadn't levied that tax, they wouldn't have been there. The, the crime for which um, Jesus was eventually crucified was forbidding to give tribute to Caesar, i.e. non-payment of taxes. You know, taxes everywhere. The first men on the moon, NASA was a tax-funded operation. Tax is, you know, they say money makes the world go round, but tax has defined history. Wow. So I'd like to look a bit later in this discussion at some solutions. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> I don't think there are any. Well, we have, surely we have to fight for some though, Yeah. even if there aren't. Um, and we haven't even talked about being self-employed or a business owner yet. Um, the solution is to leave, but I don't know where you go, but go and become a digital nomad and leave and escape the system. More, the more people that do it, then the, the, more, then the less people are paying to the system. Mm. I should say the fewer people are paying to the system. Mm. All right, well, we'll definitely come back to that. Yeah. Now is the perfect time to ask, um, how well do you think the government handled COVID and how they used the money to get us through the last couple of years? Am I allowed to swear? You're allowed to say whatever you want. I think... Well, I won't now, I've preempted it. I think it was just a cluster flip. I think they didn't know what they were doing. They were just copying everyone else. They panicked. And I'm firmly of the mind that a voluntarist approach would have resulted in much better outcomes. Furlough was just bent beyond all belief. So much has been wasted. Uh, I'm not denying that, that COVID was a thing. Certainly in its early days, you know, it killed a lot of people. My mum had awful long COVID and I'm still not entirely sure she's recovered. I still listen to that cough and I go, crikey. You know, so I'm not pretending that um, it wasn't a thing, but 
you know, the efficacy of vaccines is disputed and, um, you know, they scared everyone. They really scared everyone. And I don't think there was a need to lock down to the extent that we did, to they did. Even things like wearing masks, people say the masks don't work because the virus is so small it gets through the mask. I don't know, I'm not a scientist, but but they scare they used fear tactics and scared the living daylights out of every everyone. Why? And they the damage done to a lot of people by that lockdown is greater than the damage done by COVID in many instances. You know, my, I've got two teenage kids. Well, I've got four teenage kids, but the elder two, it really messed them up. And they all missed out on key things in their life. My dad died. We didn't, weren't ever able to have, give him a proper sending off. You know, there were so many things that just should have been able to happen that didn't. So what was this damage? Can you give us a few examples of the damage done? To... what well, in light of how government locking us down affected well, us? Well, the, 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 okay, we'll st- for a start, the nation has put on tremendous amounts of weight. There was a lot of, <laughs> we're a lot more obese than we were. Um, there's a lot of grave psychological damage done to people. It has ruined careers. You know, I know businesses that were functioning perfectly well, they've gone bust. I know hundreds of comedians whose basically careers have ended with COVID and they've had to go and do other things. Um, so those are some examples of fallout. There's been death. There was a huge rise in um, domestic violence. Um, the, I mean, there's, there's so many examples of ways that, you, you know, fallout from it. And, you know, so much of the justification for what was done was, was flawed based on flawed science or flawed logic. You know, how many people, how many heart attacks have you seen? How many people have had complications, health complications because of the vaccine? You know, there's, there's, there's no shortage of damage that was done by those lockdowns. What did you mean by furlough was bent? Well, I don't know what the figures are. Is it 30 or 40 million of, of furlough money has, has been proven to be fraudulent? I can't remember. I can't, oh, it would be billions. Billions. Yeah, did it I not be, say yeah, that? No, you said million. No, I think it's 30 or 40 billion. It'll be billions, yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah. but... but you, you mean um, claimed incorrectly, fraudulently, yeah. and then written off. I really felt... I knew a lot of people who claimed um, furlough and bounce-back loans, pumped it into crypto or <laughs> stuck yeah. it into property or whatever. So I know a lot of people who got the money that shouldn't have got the money, really. And I know a lot of people who really should have got the money and didn't get the money. And to me, it's outrageous. Mm-hmm. And now they've had to write off billions of it. And somebody's got to pay for that. Yeah. Well, we're all paying through it through inflation yeah. now. But do you think that? Sorry, guys. But do you think work culture has changed since? Yeah, I do. I I used to call COVID the great accelerator, and one of the great trends I see in work is the rise of the freelancer. More and more people are turning freelance. Again, this this boils back to a taxation thing where the tax system we now live in is designed around a physical economy with physical borders that came from the Industrial Revolution. So you tax goods, but you would also tax people because they went to one place of work and the company collected the tax for the government, you know, on behalf of the government. And that tax was deducted at source. Whereas now we're seeing 
we've seen over the last 20 or 30 years globalization and the rise of digital globalized companies, Google, even something like Starbucks, and they put one thing in one, you know, the, I, the uh, uh, intellectual property in one jurisdiction, the company profits are based in another jurisdiction, the workforce is based in another, and they effectively avoid paying tax and the tax systems haven't been able Let's to Let's just get clear on that. Do you mean corporation tax? Yes. Yeah, because yeah, there's many forms of tax. Yeah, no, they, they form, their employees still pay income tax. Yeah. They, they haven't escaped the net and yeah. they'll justify that, that they create these employment opportunities. But what we're seeing with the rise, we're seeing the rise of the freelancer and it's thought, the, the estimates are that by 2030, 2035, half of the workforce in the West will be freelance and we're seeing the death of the old worker who works for one company yeah. 20 30 years more and more people two or three jobs um and covid has normalized working remotely which is an important part of the move into being a freelancer and not having to go into the same place of work when you're working remotely you do jobs on the side um the next step for these contingent workers, these freelancers, is they leave the country. Because they go, would well, you know what house in London's too expensive? I can do the same job in Portugal. I go and live in Portugal. And then they go from Portugal, they go, actually, I hear Chiang Mai is really nice at the moment. So they go to Chiang Mai or Cartagena or wherever the hell it is. And they become nomadic. And the evidence is that once you become nomadic, once you're out of the UK for nine months of the year, you, you're, no, you're no longer you no longer have to pay income tax in the UK. And there's a lot of digital nomads. Some are deliberately evading tax, but there's a huge portion of them that literally don't know who to pay and what to pay. And because the tax system's based around you know geographical borders, the nation states that emerged with the industrial revolution in the 18th, I guess you'd say 17th, 18th, 19th centuries. You know, we think of a country like Germany and Italy, those countries are only 150, 200 years old. They're not that old. And, but on the internet, in the digital economy, there are no borders. So you could be living in, um, I don't know, Lisbon, and then you're hired to do a job by a company in Singapore. And then by the time you finish the job, you're in Cartagena. Well, who do you pay tax to? It's just not that clear. And you're, so you're going to see, in the same way that we've seen the rise of these hard-to-tax globalised companies, you're seeing a new rise of a new workforce, which is hard-to-tax globalised individuals. And, you know, I'm afraid COVID has accelerated that process because it's normalised remote working. There are some people who have a theory that COVID was part of the plan to move towards globalization, totalitarian regime, new world order, the great reset. Oh, nothing be happy, Klaus Schwab. The amount of times I see all this stuff on my video feed. What's your theory on all of this? Is there some nefarious um, puppet stringing behind the scenes going on? Well, that um, remark he said, uh, we'll own nothing or you'll own nothing and you'll be happy is one of the most misconstrued <laughs> comments ever. He was talking about the rise of the rental economy uh, rather than the owner economy. So, you know, you won't have a holiday home. You'll just have, you do Airbnb here one time and Airbnb there the next time. You won't own a car. You'll just hire a car when you need one. 
and so on and so forth. And, you know, driverless cars, and you'll just go on the app and call the driverless car. That, that's what he was talking about. So I do think he's been misconstrued. I'm not defending Klaus Schwab or the WEF because it is, a, it is um, awful on so many different levels. But I, I, I'm a big never ascribed to malice, that which can be explained as incompetence person. And I think a lot of what everyone's describing as a conspiracy is actually accidental. But then I talk to some of my conspiracy theory mates and they break my balls and they argue and I'm going, come on, that wasn't deliberate. They just profited from the situation and so on and so forth. But there is, you know, in the same way, for example, you, what, what the internet has made possible is that people of a similar mind congregate together. So, for example, if you think that Bitcoin fixes this and Bitcoin's wonderful, then you'll go and you'll find other Bitcoiners on the internet and you'll all group together and you'll make libertarian arguments and you'll make projections about where the Bitcoin price is going. Similarly, if you're into gold or whatever it is. and But, you know, there's similar groups in, you know, Marxists, you know, who think we need to go back to Marxism or, you know, different ideas attract different groups. And there is a network of people who think they know better than you and they want to plan the world in which we live. And, you know, if I was invited to Davos, I'd probably go. And, uh, you know, I'd go and hang out with Tony Blair and Emmanuel Macron and Klaus Schwab and all the rest of them. And, but they genuinely believe the world they're designing is better. I, I don't subscribe to that, but they're, they're big state planners and they're, probably social de democrats of one form or another and they don't see anything wrong with the many of the hypocritical things they come out with so there is definitely an agenda of powerful people who are trying to impose their view on the world their, that's what we do with ideology we try and make the argument impose it on other people so there is something going on but it's not and they're exploiting developments and they're exploiting the situation and i do think you know, vaccine passports, well, they're already, they're a thing. Can't go to America without a vaccine. You know, bits of Europe you can't go, go to without a vaccine. And if many people had had their way, it would be the case here. But fortunately, you know, a few backbenchers stood up to Boris Johnson and basically told him if you'd go through with this, you're losing your job. He, he didn't do the lockdown in just before Christmas. And suddenly Britain was this sort of went in another direction and proved that it had no material impact on COVID. And so a few other countries of Europe have followed us. Go governments don't like to take risks. They just copy other governments. And, but that set an agenda. So thank God for all of that. But so there is something that's planned, but, but I, I'm not in the full on conspiracy like some of my mates are. Why did you say that the World Economic Forum is awful? Uh, because I don't agree with that. Blairite world view. Which is? Um, well, for a start, that we know better than you. They're big believers in state planning. Like when Blair started out, he seemed to be quite libertarian, but, but you know, there's this whole, uh, you know, pro-EU. I'm not a fan of the EU. I think that the more decisions that are made lo locally, the better. And, you know, a decision, when you get top-down decisions made by bureaucrats, I think it's awful. I think I don't agree with state money. 
I think what's happened to the housing market as a result of state money and the way it's priced out the young is awful. Um, and I just don't, I'm not a technocrat. Those guys are technocrats. Is Bill Gates the Antichrist? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> so he's got this... You're asking about all this stuff. I'm, there are people who know way more about all this than I do, but... I actually just wrote that in there for a oh, bit of a you? laugh. But yeah, oh, okay. it, you see, I do try, well, I do engage with the tens of thousands of people that comment on my videos and a lot of people seem to have a big issue with Bill Gates and how much he seems to be taking into his own hands. I'll tell you where, where Bill Gates is an antichrist. It's that, you know, for a start, Bill Gates was very lucky to have been born when he was born in the late 1950s. And you look at the two, three, four, five, you know, big inter internet billionaires of that early era, Bill Gates, Steve Jobs and a couple of others, they were all born within like six months of each other. And it's one of those things, right place, right time in history. So they were just around and young at the right time in the evolution of computers. So they were lucky in that respect. I'm not doubting that Bill Gates is clever, but I don't, you know, you talk to other computer programmers, he wasn't like a genius computer programmer or something in the way that some people were, but his dad was a patent lawyer. And where Gates' genius came in is that he patented everything. And, you know, he, he, so he made his billions as much from being in the right place in the right time and being, you know, on a, I'm, I've got no doubt he got A star in all his computer science things. You know, he's, he's, he's clever, but his brilliance was in his patent, patenting. That's where he made his fortunes. And, you know, again, I'm Mr. Free Market and I think patents, uh, I, I like them when they suit me, but uh, on the whole, it's, they're quite crony capitalist. Has he not, though, put billions into helping remove some disease from the world or nearly, isn't he virtually single-handedly nearly removed polio, for know. example? Possibly, I don't know. Yeah. Mm. And attracted, I think, 32 billion from Warren Buffett for the Bill and Melinda well, Gates mates. Foundation. They're <laughs> mates. Well, you know, it's his money, he does what he likes with it. And he, he's, again, he's got his worldview and his ideology and he's trying to, and he's doing his bit to impose it. And he's doing what he considers good, good work. Mm. So, but um, there's, there's definitely a dark and sleazy side. What is that dark and sleazy well, side? I don't know. I mean, I'm just looking. It was there was this. This bit was involved with Epstein, and there's there's a lot of nasty. I mean, I don't know if they're true or not. But there's a lot of nasty rumours, and nobody seems to have been prosecuted. And what's going on there? Hmm. Hmm. Right. Okay. Then. How should the current tax system change? We should go to. Uh, taxing people 10 or 15% flat rate income tax uh, and we should replace as many taxes as possible just get rid of them altogether and replace them with what Henry George called the single that uh, the sing the single tax which is uh, we instead of taxing labor and productivity you tax land use it, particularly in city centers the more land you occupy in city centres and the more because uh, um, land in a city centre becomes valuable because of the community 
And the only stroke of genius, you know, how much has Buckingham Palace multiplied in value over the last whatever? Well, that's because everyone wants to see it. And, um, or, you know, how much has a shop in Oxford Street gone up in value? It's because everyone shops in Oxford Street. It's not because of any brilliant, you know, the guy who owns the shop hasn't created some fantastic new thing that's made the world better. He just owns a shop in Oxford Street. So if you want exclusive rights to, to, and I'm talking about the unimproved value of the land. So if you build a house on it, it's a fantastic house, fine. The house is yours. But the land in its unimproved state, we tax that. And is that going to generate enough tax revenue for the government? No. And that's the beauty of it. Because it's a transparent tax. And it means that the landowner is going, well, I'm paying this much tax. And you're not delivering. Um, so I'm going to elect somebody else. And it's a very healthy relationship between citizen and government. What do you think? It won't happen because um, the uh, evidence of history is if you try and raise new taxes during times of peace, you get deposed. You need some kind of crisis to levy a new tax. And, um, you know, a war or something or in the case of quantitative easing, you know, financial crisis. So I don't think land value tax is going to happen, but it's a simple, easy to administer, pure tax, and it keeps the power balance between citizen and government in, in healthy balance. Something that perplexes me is that in 2008, when there was a banking-led crisis, yep. banks were bailed out by governments. Yet we're in a cost of living crisis and the government seem to be doing nothing. And when I say doing nothing, there's no windfall taxes for oil and gas companies, which profits are soaring when people are choosing between heating and eating. They reduced VAT in 2008 in the banking crisis. They haven't reduced VAT. In fact, they've increased corporation tax from 19 to 25%. So why are the government not intervening this time round? Well, I don't know. You'd, you'd need to ask them that. And I think they're really panicking around about it. And I think they probably know that if they don't do something uh, or it doesn't go away, they're going to lose the next election. Um, but I don't think imposing windfall taxes is an answer. I think if you look at every inflation in history, corporations have been blamed for profiteering during that inflection in, in during that inflation and and the leaders go for them if you want to know why inflation's runaway inflation it's because they printed loads of money and they locked the economies down and it broke up supply chains and then one and then a man decided to go and invade a, another country and that everyone panicked and that set off supply chains but you know why is all so expensive because for for 15 years there's been this probably longer, there's been this narrative that fossil fuels are evil and that we need to get rid of fossil fuels. So we've taxed them to death. We've had this moral argument against them. We haven't invested in them. People, if you actually look at what fossil fuels have made possible for humankind, they've made wonderful things uh, possible. It's the most, it's a unique, cheap energy source and we should be embracing it. But instead they've attacked it as a result of the lack of investment, supplies dried up and the price has gone up. So I don't, and, and a windfall tax would just be one more attack on it. Mm. It's not going to make the, if you want to make um, the, get rid of the cost of living crisis, get rid of uh, taxes on fuel. There's your, there's your bailout. 
Mm. I want to talk about billionaires and corporations run by billionaires because I think they're two separate things. People tend to group them together, but there's there seems to be a fairly big hatred of big tech companies and billionaires, certainly in UK society and culture. Um, not everywhere, but you know, I see a lot of it. So let's talk about big tech corporations first. Um, why are they not made to pay corporation tax like all other companies and should they be? Because their business models are digital and borderless and tax systems are designed around physical economies and the tax systems have not adapted. And should they have adapted? Yeah. And why haven't they adapted? Because I can't tax, I, if I'm in England or if I'm in Britain and your corporation profits are in Holland, I can't tax you because it's in another jurisdiction. Mm. Okay, so let's go to billionaires then. So should billionaires be taxed more? No, should be taxed less. Everyone should be taxed less. Billionaires, you know, I mean, I think to become a billionaire, you've probably got to be, be a little bit of a psychopath and have a ruthless streak to you. But, but also billionaires create wealth. They create a lot of employment. They, they you know, create opportunities Advance for Advance the world often. Uh, often they do, like Bill Gates. Well, many are engineers, aren't they? Many, often. Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm not saying all billionaires are good or all billionaires are bad, but, yeah. but um, taxing billionaires isn't going to uh, cure the fact that most government services are crap. And how do we improve government services? Have, have the government not supply them. So let's actually come to If you to want the... to see incompetent government at work, look at the Russian army. I mean, it's just hopeless. So it's, it's, it's not only is it incompetent, it's, it's horrible stuff they're doing. And it's, it's, it's horrible to the, to, you, to the Ukrainians, but it's also horrible to the Russian soldiers themselves. You know, so many mothers are going to lose their son or have already lost their sons. And it's, you know, the kit's rubbish, the tanks aren't properly made, the planning's all up the spout. And, and it's because they're all, everyone's too, you know, it's corrupt and then nobody will tell Putin, you know, wants to man up and tell Putin the truth and so, because they'll get executed, you know. It's, um, uh, uh, <laughs> most things that are wrong in the world can be traced back to some kind of government incompetence somewhere along the line. Is Putin richer than Elon Musk? Uh, that's an interesting question. I don't know. But um, you imagine one has hit his wealth a lot better than the other. And the, 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 what's, what's interesting is, I would imagine Musk is, is richer, but the... So why did Elon Musk say Putin is richer? Oh, did he? Yeah. Oh, he's probably, then maybe Putin is. Um, the, D don't um, the czars the, of Russia own everything. The wealth everything. of the Russian oligarchs is mostly built from commodity wealth. Um, and, you know, because all the... Russian is a commodity-rich country. Its economy is built around producing commodities, grains, energies, metals, and so on. And most of that was seized with the fall of the Soviet Union and so on. So it's tangible physical wealth. But what we've seen in the last, I don't know, 30, 40 years is the rise of new form of wealth, which is digital wealth. And the digital economy has grown at a far faster 
speed than the physical economy has because digital is more scalable. And so, um, and also because it's much less heavily regulated. But, and you know, you look at something like you own a mine. Well, if the copper price falls and the mine becomes economic, you have to close down the mine. And, you know, mining is very capital intensive and it's a very difficult business mining. Um, whereas, you know, you just design an app and everyone really likes the app and a you know, billion people around the world download your app off the App Store. Well, you've only had to design it once and stick it on the App Store. And then a billion, you know, so there's a scalability to the digital economy and that's why it's grown so quickly. And I think Musk, you know, where's his money? PayPal, well, that's a digital thing. Um, Tesla's sort of, I mean, it's sort of physical, but it's also digital as well. Um, space, what's his other company? Good question. I should the know. Other, the, another way that Musk has made, I thought he had three things, but again, he's also played the green card very well. And so he's secured a lot of subsidies and a bit like Bill Gates. Neuralink. Neuralink. What the boring do? company. What does it do? Neurological research company. Okay. Well, I don't, I don't know. But, but anyway, in any case, Musk's, a lot of Musk's wealth is less tangible than Putin's. Mm. So, so um, I would say, you know, trademarks, uh, patents, um, IP, all the rest of it. Um, I don't imagine Putin has any of that. So any of that kind of wealth. So if we're in a commodity super cycle and, commo and you know, oil's going to $150 and copper's going to whatever, then oil, Putin's probably richer. But if we go into a commodity bear market like we saw between after 2011, then Musk's probably the man. But tech, tech is currently declining in value relative to tangible. Right. Rishi Sunak's wife was paying no tax in the UK and because of public pressure and perception, reversed that and decided to pay tax in the UK. What did you think about that? Well, I was amused by the whole story. Uh, and, um, you know, they buckled under public pressure. She's a digital nomad, and basically. You know, I talked about the new non-DOMs. You know, more and more workers will become non-DOM. And I guess if she's an Indian national and she pays her taxes in, in India, why should she have to pay tax twice? You know, that's unfair. But, and, you know, she, again, with the whole argument, that, you know, she pays her VAT, she pays her council tax, she pays her fuel duty, she pays all those taxes. It's just tax on her worldwide income that she doesn't pay here. Now, if she's got non-DOM status, but then if she's here for more than six months a year, then maybe she isn't a non-DOM. But I bet you the income tax she pays in India isn't that high. <laughs> so I'm sort of ambivalent about it, but there's a lot of, there's a lot of hypocrisy. And for you to be the Chancellor's wife and for all the people that you're telling what to do as the Chancellor, you know, you've got to do this and you've got to pay this tax and that there. Meanwhile, your wife's not paying income tax. You know, it's not a good look. But whenever the argument of tax comes up, he doesn't pay tax. The, and this is a, it's a common failing of both sides, but it's really common in the left. They cannot distinguish between income and capital. And 
You know, I bet you, I don't know, Richard Branson's income isn't that high. And I, in fact, I know for a fact it isn't because I used to know his number two very well and Richard just deliberately reinvested any profits he made so he wouldn't have to pay tax on them. Uh, you know, tax was leakage, they used to call it. But, but billionaire wealth does not derive from income. It derives from uh, the appreciation in the value of their real estate, their companies, their fine art, the financial assets, whatever it is. And, and most times that is not taxable unless you sell. And so most don't, because otherwise they're gonna to have to face a tax event. And there's this inability to distinguish between capital and labor. And in fact, we, you know, that's one of the reasons society is so unequal is we tax labor very heavily. We barely tax capital at all. And when you say the inability to distinguish capital versus income, do you mean a lack of desire to, or just a fundamental inability? Ignorance. ignorance, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I, I don't know what Richard Branson's income is, but I bet you, and I'm just using him as a random example, but I, you know, I bet you most of his companies pay most of his expenses. And, you know, most people to live a normal life you know, I bet you his actual personal income is probably only a hundred grand or two grand or two hundred grand or something. And, you know, most of that he'll pay. And I'm not talking about all the money that goes to him that he spends, but most of that will just be done through his companies. And if he's in wherever he is, you know, if he's in America running his space company, well, all the time that he'll be in America, the space company will pay his expenses because he's there on business. You know, so there isn't an income event mm. there. Could you argue and that's it, just smart money management? It is. Of course it's smart money management. That's what most people do is they rearrange their their business affairs so as to minimise tax. And also... That's one of the reasons they're rich. And all that reinvestment that's gone to grow their companies and create those jobs. Yeah. That might not have been reinvested. Yeah, well, exactly. He spends his money better than the government does, for sure. Well, this is one thing I wanted to talk about because the government are illegally insolvent enterprise. I run a business and if I trade insolvently, I can go to prison for that. The yeah. government seem to be able to trade insolvently and have no consequences. Yeah, and if you spend your, uh, your company's pension money on current expenses, that's f accounting fraud, but that's what the government does with national insurance. It's, 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 it's supposed to be insurance, it's supposed to be in a pot, but they spend it. If that was a bit prior, they, they also spent some of the um, national lottery money. Yeah, <laughs> well, it's what, it's what, but it's what Maxwell did, and you know, the government does the same with national insurance. It's totally hypocritical. How do we then change things? So you you proposed a fairly flat ten percent tax rate. How can we change things? Because we could argue nothing's going to change, but if we don't speak out and try and push for change, then definitely nothing will change. Well, the political system in the UK is designed to prevent change. You know, you get your little vote every four or five years, but you, I mean, what difference does it make if you choose Labour or Tory? You're going to get some sort of social democratic blob with an expanding civil service. It just makes no difference. Voting has no impact. And um, Peter Thiel wrote a good essay called The Education of a Libertarian in, I think it was 2008, 2009. And he said, you can't achieve political change through politics. And the two, the ways you ex experience, you achieve political change is either new technology, 
i.e. the internet and all the, and that's happening, you know, we talked about the internet, the globalized medium, as more and more people work on the internet, become global citizens, they, they're going to leave the system and countries with existing borders are going to, uh, unable to sustain their spending. And so they'll eventually break up and fall apart. Some of them will. And I think if you look at the borders of the world in 50, couple of generations time, it's going to look very different to the borders of the world today. You're going to see countries break up. Um, but the other way Thiel said you achieve political change is through new frontiers. And he talked about space, seasteading, um, under the sea, you know, new, new places. And again, they're trying seasteading, but nobody can get it to work. And a few people are trying, you know, there's a little bit of land that's been occupied between Moldova and Croatia. I think it's Moldova and Croatia called Liberland. I'm going to get, I've got the countries wrong. It's Croatia and maybe Croatia and Slovenia. And it's like no man's land. And some guys occupied it and sent up, set up the independent <laughs> Republic of Liberland, which he's planning to turn into the world's greatest tax haven. Um, but, you know, to be recognised as a country, you need UN recognition. There's no way the UN's going to recognise an international tax haven. It doesn't want people, you know, buying up land and setting up new countries. It's it's because of the, tech, the international technocratic organisation's rule. So it's very, very difficult. And I think you've just got to look after your own house, look after your own life, um, live the life you want to live. If you're young, leave um, and, you know, be become a digital nomad. If you're slightly older, you know, educate, read, minimise your expenses and, and just adjust your life as best as possible. And But don't save, keep your money in gold and Bitcoin, don't save in um, sterling. Because of inflation. Well, partly because it'll lose its value, but if you keep your money in sterling, you're, you're endorsing the system. Whereas if you keep your money in non-government assets that have no liability, then you're, you're, you're getting your wealth out of the system. And then just draw as and when you need, because you still need to rely on Yeah, sterling. I mean, there's a whole movement that says borrow in big, save in Bitcoin and borrow in dollars. Until Bitcoin crashes. And well, that's the problem. <laughs> so the thing is, it's... A hell of a risky trade. Yeah. But you could diversify though, can't you? You said gold, which is less volatile. Mm -hmm. Physical assets, maybe. Yeah. Watches are tradable to a certain degree, aren't yeah. they? They get, you know, but the, that, the, the, there's a lot of talk about wealth taxes, which would effectively be mm. taxes of capital. But it, but uh, the, they're very hard to, um, actually make work on a practical basis. And governments will always tax where it's easy to collect. You know, there was talk about an unrealised capital gain. I thought it was the most ridiculous proposition known to mankind. Yeah, so... Ridiculous. So imagine if you'd had an unrealised capital gains tax yeah. on your Bitcoin last year when it went to yeah, $65,000. Exactly. Yeah. And then, or on your Luna. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah. You, lo yeah. And then you lost all your money so on your Luna. who decides what the gain is? Them. And who values it? Them. When do they? When do, when's it claimed by them? And then when it goes to nothing or halves or quarters in value, what are they going to pay it all back? Well, that's it's, a ridiculous yeah, concept ever. It's, it, absolutely, it's just they're clutching not, at straws. Well, it's easy to say these things, but it's very hard to actually do it in practice. You get that. It's not just tax. You get that with so many policies. 
people go, well, we should do this and do that. And it's, okay, fine, but how do you actually do it? Mm. Like the other one I was arguing with somebody, oh yeah, reparations for slavery. This girl I was talking to the other day was demanding reparations for the slave trade. And I personally don't think there should be reparations for the slave trade because it was so long ago. And, you know, if you start doing uh, reparations for one evil committed in history, then every evil committed in history needs to be made good. And then there's a load of other reasons which are besides the point. But the, the logistics of actually going, who pays? Like, so for example, my ancestors were Italian, so they weren't actually, uh, well, actually half of my ancestors were here in the um, early 18th century when we had the slave trade, but the other half weren't. So do I only have to pay half reparation? And then what if, so my um, ex-wife was half Jamaican, uh, so does she, only, because she was only half Jamaican, not wholly, does she only get half reparation and you, you know do you know do you see what i mean there's mm. just it's just the practicalities of going and then they go well you know this because this whole argument was going on with um uh, when the royal fat uh, prince william and thing were in the caribbean they were talking about reparations but so does the english government pay it to the government of jamaica well why should the government get it why shouldn't the people get it and, and then you go, well, and what about all the people who pay tax into the English system who just weren't here? Mm. So it's, 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 you know, no matter what you think of the ethics of the argument, the actual practicalities of putting the policy in place are, uh, it's just very difficult to do. So you see a common, it's a common thing is, is you, you argue for some policy based on principle without actually looking at the practicalities of it. Mm. And, you ha and, and that's just another example. And is, does that link back to the reason why they tax employees at source? Because that's just super easy. It's an easy tax to collect. So, but it's going to get harder because freelancers pay tax after the event. Right. It's one of the reasons, I don't know so if So freelancers are like a self-employed person. So they're, yeah, all, they're paying all, tax later. Yeah, they, they, they get their money and then they yes. pay tax. But the, and, and all the studies have shown that a freelancer and an um, uh, employed person doing the same job, the freelancer will end up paying much lower levels of tax. And it's one of the reasons why there was a big move with Gordon Brown and all that to get you know individual limited companies and all this, that and the other. And now they're trying to get people back in the, in the system because they're realising that people are paying less tax. Yeah, you know, they're, they're definitely they're coming down hard on self-employed people who really work for. That's in, why corporation yeah. tax has gone up twenty four percent and twenty five percent, whatever it is. Yeah, I just hate it. Um, right, okay. Bitcoin is crashing and people are panicking. What's the future of cryptocurrencies? My new theory is uh, that money is communication. Uh, you know, we communicate with words, but often what you do says more about you than what you say. And what you do with your money, it's an essential form of communication within a society. What is this worth? Uh, you know, it, it, you, you value is communicated through society by price. 
Okay, so money's a, an essential form of communication. It's, it's just how we all think. We know that this is worth this and this is worth that and you're worth this and you're worth that. That's, it's how the whole of society functions like that. So in that sense, money is a language. And if you think of all the languages there have been in history, you know, some language, you know, Welsh or Cornish or languages die out and other languages replace them. And you look at English, you know, there's million, I don't know, not millions, but tens of thousands of words that have been spoken in English throughout history that we no longer use. You look at Shakespearean English, Dickensian English, Chaucerian English, they're almost unrecognisable from English that we speak today. But English is still English. So language is an organic, constantly evolving thing. Very hard to regulate. Although there's been plenty of government that's tried. And you, you know, you ban one word, people will just start using another one. But anyway, the the English, despite the fact that probably is getting smaller as a language, in that we're making do with fewer words, grammar's getting a lot more simple, we're using far fewer tenses. So it's you know, I imagine Shakespeare or Dickens's vocabulary was far bigger than, than, you know, a great writer living today or the average person living. Well, of course, it's bigger than the average person, but you know, so the the size of the language might be shrinking, but English is still the dominant language in the world. I think more people speak is it Mandarin or Cantonese than speak English, but by the time you factor in English as a second language, you have to go. Well, English is going to become. I mean, it already is the dominant language of the world, and it will be, it's only going to get bigger as more and more people learn it. It's the language of commerce, it's the language of media, and so on. Bitcoin is English. Do you see what I mean? Bitcoin is the growing international monetary language, not the US dollar, because, you know, it's very hard to get a US dollar account if you're outside of the USA. It, 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 the US dollar is the international language of, um, of, you know, commodity prices and so on. But it's anyone, all you need to, to be able to start receiving Bitcoin for your work is a phone with an internet connection. And Bitcoin is the default cash system of the internet. Bitcoin is English. So could you say it's the evolution of money? Yeah. And I guess new forms of money are often quite disruptive and not always accepted by government. 100%. But, the, I mean, more and more people are starting to accept Bitcoin in payment of taxes. And, but, it, you know, money never stops evolving. It's the uh. technology. It's always evolved in the same way the language constantly mm. evolves. Even fiat money. Nobody's planned the fiat money system. It's just evolved. But Bitcoin is better. Why is Bitcoin better? Because it's sounder, it's faster, it's international, it's cheaper, it's apolitical, it's, you know, it's the most powerful computer network and the most resilient computer network ever invented in all history. So why does Charlie Munger think it's rat poison and why would Warren Buffett not, not buy all of Bitcoin for $25? Well, he would, because they're all fuddy-duddies and they get it. <laughs> <laughs> he 
He said he wouldn't buy all of Bitcoin for $25. Well. He said he'd buy 1% of all real estate in America for billions, tens of billions. You, you know, he understands real estate. He understands those markets. He's, he's, he's you know, t- he, well, I remember when I started going to Bitcoin conferences, I'm, I was born in 1969, and I'd go to like gold conferences, mining conferences, I'd be the youngest person there. I'd go to Bitcoin conferences, I'd be the oldest person there. Mm. It's, a, it's a young person's thing. You're younger than me, so you probably get it. But, but you know, they're just old fuddy-duddies. They don't get it. And, um, you know... Warren Buffett is good, he's media friendly, he's good on headlines, he's good on snap things and you take a position on something and his position has been that it's crap and you dig in. Mm. A lot of people have lost their shirt at the moment though. People Not on Bitcoin. Spend, well, but they've been gearing up and well, leveraging on Bitcoin. That's different. Their taxes are now more than their value of their Bitcoin sure, portfolio. But that that's levered betting. Mm. And owning the cash system itself are different. So do you think... If they've lost their shirts, it's not because of Bitcoin. I mean, of course, Bitcoin price has fallen, but, you know, all they're investing in... And I have a huge amount of sympathy for anyone who's in this situation. And I have lost a lot of money in the past before. And I know how horrible it is. You've stuck... You, you feel ashamed and you start feeling like you've betrayed your family and all this stuff. And it's quite easy to get suicidal. So don't think I don't have any sympathy with people who've lost money. But bottom line is, and, and they were speculating in these things because they wanted to make their life better and their family's life better. I get it. I totally get it. But they were speculating in shit coins and they were using leverage. And leverage is a fantastic thing when it works in your favour. But when it doesn't, it's horrible. Mm. And to quote Warren Buffett, <laughs> it's only when the tide out goes out that you find out who's been swimming naked. Mm. So is is the smart play with Bitcoin Earn to just together. hold forever? Yeah. I think so, till yeah. something better comes along. Mm. Is it a problem that it's not really a currency like it's supposed to be? What do you mean? Well, it was supposed to be used as a currency. Well, it does get used. Well, hardly. It's, it's not really a practical currency, is it? I use it all it? the time. You use it all the time? Yeah, to pay people and to receive payment. Yeah, well, it's so it's so easy. Ooh, really? You're not using the light. You're obviously not using the Lightning Network, but you you it's it's like if somebody does a job for me that's like, or I owe them a tenner or fifty quid or something, or even an expensive job, and you go, do you want to be paid in Bitcoin or do you want to be paid in fear you know it's and particularly if it's in another country it's just so much easier to use bitcoin okay so most people aren't using it as a currency well because i don't think most people are uh, do you do you pay or receive money in bitcoin do you pay or receive money in bitcoin do you pay or receive money in bitcoin do you have any bitcoins and you say so you don't have any and you do and you so you're just hoarding what you've got. Store of wealth. That's how it's mostly yeah. being used, isn't it? And it's not smart enough to be used Okay, but but so presumably you're if you've got to pay somebody something, you're you're paying them in pounds because you think the bitcoin's gonna be worth more in the future than the pounds are gonna be. Yeah. If you thought the bitcoins were gonna be worth less, you'd pay them in the bitcoins. It does make sense, yeah. But and so you've got a bitcoin wallet. So if I if I said to you, I, I for the job that you've just done, I'll pay you in um, Bitcoins or I'll pay you in pounds, which would you prefer to be paid in? Oh, 
I would say pounds. Oh, would you? Oh, you lose me the argument. <laughs> <laughs> and here's the thing, because, hey, I'm not anti, by the way. Yeah. I love disruptions because that's where you get progress. Yeah. So I'm keen on virtually all disruptions. I found, you know, the London black cabbies all protesting against Uber. found it really fascinating because for 20 years you get in a black cab and you'd someone would be fairly rude, it'd stink a piss and there'd be no charger. And yeah. then Uber came along and they were polite. And so yeah. I, I love I love progress, but most I, people do not how to know how to buy Bitcoin. Most people do not know how to set up a wallet. Most people are very confused and overwhelmed. And so it's not yet a ubiquitous currency anywhere near. So well, it could they just, need to sign up to my Substack. Well, go on then, let's have <laughs> a newsletter. Pitch. Yeah, what's this? Frisbee.substack.com. And uh, it's, I have a, a newsletter that I write twice a week. It's free, but there's a paid version you can get as well. But, you know, I write about, I write about everything. On, I, in midweek, I write some market commentary. And then on the weekend, I write more sort of thought-provoking piece. But the... On cryptos, you mean? No, sometimes... Bitcoin, yeah. sometimes others, like this week I wrote about gold, why gold's a primal instinct. Last week I wrote about the demographics of primary schools in the UK and how that will be the demographic. Because, you know, nobody quite knows what immigration is, for example, in this country at the moment. Nobody, because, and people who come to this country who maybe shouldn't be here, you know, have come illegally, don't fill in the census. So you don't, the census is no longer an accurate measure of population. Nobody, nobody knows. But if you look at, there's two ways you can look at um, GPs, because most people will sign up for a GP. But I just look at primary schools. And right. you look at the demographics of a primary school and you go, that's going to be the demographic of the country in 25 years' time. Mm. So that was a, that's an example of a thought thing I write. But yeah, but I do write a, a lot about Bitcoin. And I've lost my way slightly. I was selling my newsletter. Frisbee.substack.com. Um, and it's free. Uh, but Why do you use Substack over email? Oh, because you were telling me about it. And it's I Substack. If you don't know Substack, I would really urge you to check it out. It's it's fantastic if you're a consumer of content. It's a really good way to find writers who write about subjects you're interested in and follow them, or f just writers you like. Um, it's also a podcast and a, and a thing. But as a producer of content, it's a really good platform. It's, it, it's just, it's going to be, it's, it's in the ascendancy, but it's a fantastic new platform. I can't speak highly enough of it. It's really good. But more and more people are, are, are entering the Bitcoin space for sure. But I mm. do accept that it is still a bit geeky and techy, but it's a lot easier than you realise. Mm. Okay. Thank and you. as I say, you own a little bit of Bitcoin. It's like you're owning shares in the most powerful resilient computer network ever invented. Now, mm. why would you not want to own some shares in that? You seem to like decentralization. Yeah. I know what I wanted to talk about. Okay. The cabbies. You talking about the cabbies. Yeah. I just did. I felt really sorry for the cabbies when Uber came along, but I had a car and I sold, well, actually I had at least a car and the lease on the car ran out and I started using Uber before I got the new car. This would be about 2013, 2014, 2015, around about then. And I was like, this is great. And I never ended up buying a new car. And actually, as a result of not buying a new car, I started using black cabs again in a way that I hadn't previously because all the money I would have spent on the car, I just got taxis everywhere. 
And so it was really good for a bit. And I was like, Uber's half the price of the black cab. You know, the black cabs have had their little monopoly for ages. They've refused to improve, you know, adapt or die. So I had, a, I felt sorry for them, but I also felt, you know, the, the but knowledge. evolution doesn't feel sorry for anyone, no, does it? No, it doesn't. It's cruel. And, you know, the knowledge, my, my um, uncle was a black cab driver. And he just, he would always go on about his massive frontal cortex because they're part of the brain that has to make inst quick instantaneous decisions is really pronounced in cabbies because of the knowledge and they have to plan the routes in their head. But then sat-navs came along and you get Google and it tells you where the traffic is. You know, that, that part of the brain's no longer necessary. And you see most cabbies now use sat-navs. Mm. But anyway, Uber came along, it's half the price. And I was like, I'm just gonna use Uber and I'll use a black cab thing. But then, some point in the last couple of years, Uber's just got crap. It's got really, really bad. And I mean, black cabs are so, so expensive, but you know, they are good. And so they seem to be winning the war. But one thing that happened as a result of Uber and black cabs is that suddenly you could pay with a credit card and a black cab, whereas previously you couldn't, they resisted that. And it's like, nobody's got cash anymore. Just get a credit card machine. And the reason they did it, they wanted the cash of and tax. You can't you know, blame them. Yeah. Well, can you blame them? But now they're like, oh, actually, you know, so Uber forced that improvement. So actually black yeah. cabs, and then during the lockdown, Uber had a lot of problems and black cabs got really good again. And a lot of black cab drivers are like, I've never had it so good as this year. So this, and it's not during the lockdown, after in the post lockdown thing, mm. the actual lockdown for black cab drivers must have been terrible. Of course. Same as comedians. Mm. Sounds like a good advert for free market capitalism. What you've just said there. It is and it isn't. But Fair Uber, competition. I, don't know what to Uber. I, went, I went to Prague and Uber was fantastic. This three weeks ago, but Uber in London's just mm. crap. So free markets. You said you're yeah. you're a fan of free markets. Could you argue though that there needs to be some intervention? Well, yeah, you could. But but um, if you're a purist, the answer is no. What about child labour? I mean, that was probably a good intervention to get rid of that, wasn't it? I don't think, I think the wealthier people get and the more money they have, uh, the more society advances and the bizarrely, the better they behave. Right. You do things when you're poor and desperate that you would just not do when you are rich and comfortable. Mm. So I think, you know, I don't think child labour would be uh, a thing in a free market. Mm. I just don't think people, I think the wealth created and the moral thing just wouldn't stand for it. Mm. Should we do a quick and fire round? It's all oh, for child. I mean, you know, okay. you read about Indonesia and so on. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, there's a lot wrong with the world. <laughs> yeah, I'll say. <laughs> okay. I think we'll do a quick fire round, sure. but just before, solutions. How can people save tax, minimise tax? Well, one possibility is not working as hard. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a the, the unfortunate nature of welfare is that some people, you get to a sort of low threshold and people are like, I don't need to work. That's not going to get us out of the... No, but like, in a, my girlfriend's Irish and she was just, just telling me about the furlough money and the housing benefit. And when everything opened up again, um, there was just a whole class of people like, oh, I'm not going back to work. Why should I go and work in a shop? I get paid, I get paid about 10% less for not working. I may as well not work, do a bit of moonlighting. Don't tell the tax man. So, so 
you know, one way is not to earn anything, but I assume your viewers and listeners are industrious people who want to better their lives and better their lots and improve things. Uh, so that's not an option for them. You just have to manage your affairs in such a way as to be, you know, they, they, they make the laws. It's incredibly complicated. I think our tax system is equivalent to 14 times the length of all the Harry Potter books combined. Wow. <laughs> it's just so big and complicated, but the result is there's plenty of loopholes. Become a freelancer if you can, you know, just have a good accountant and make sure you manage your affairs so as to be legally compliant, but also tax efficient. Meaning knowing what you can run as an expense? Yeah, all that. Yeah. Okay. Be careful when you sell things, when you buy them, you don't hit yourself with a huge... Capital gains tax can be crippling. Mm. And, you know, for most people, capital gains tax is like a once-in-a-decade event, you know, if they sell their company or they have some big liquidity thing. And to suddenly wallop them with a... Like, my mum bought a uh, flat in... Uh, would have been 1981. And it was worth something like... I forget what the number is, but just I'll make up some numbers. She bought it for something like 30 grand. And if she were to sell it today, I think it's worth like a million and a half or something. So she would have to pay capital gains tax on, you know, from 30 grand to a million and a half. But you sort of think, well, come on. It's just that's what's happened there is the incremental effects of 10% one year, 10% one year. And there should be some kind of way of offsetting that. But there isn't. And she could actually do with that money. Um, well, you can refinance and take some of it as a well, loan. Well, that's, that's what she's been forced to do, but, and mm. that's, a, one, that's the backfire. But, so the result is that she just sits on a flat that, that has a crappy yield. There's much better ways to invest that money, but um, the, she can't... Um, the tax system as it's designed and the stamp duty and all the rest of it, she's just like... I'll just keep it. Mm. I don't want to pay that capital gain because it's 28% she would have to pay. It's crazy. And then when she dies, it's even more. Uh, well, it'd be 40. Yeah. So, yeah. but the, but do you see, like, but if if the taxation was more sensible, she would sell it, somebody else could buy it and there'd be more well, activity yeah. in the property market. This is the thing. If the taxation was more sensible, people wouldn't be so anti-paying it and stop paying it and avoiding it and therefore there'd probably be more liquidity. That's the... Um, surprising evidence of places that have low taxation is that revenue actually increases when tax rates are lower because yeah. people are happier to pay it. What's that tax bell curve? Have you heard of that yeah, one? Yeah, the Laffer curve. That's it. And there's an optimum, isn't there? Well, there's an optimum point if you're the government where you get the maximum right. return. <laughs> yeah. But and they must be way out. Our government yeah, must be but way that over that. Yeah, the problem with the Laffer curve is it encourages government to find the optimum point. Whereas I think government should be doing much less and so they should be on a lower point on the curve. But, you know, ancient Greece, they had voluntary taxes and people paid more than they were expecting to because it became a virtue thing. Look at me, I've built this fantastic building for the community, right. blah, blah, blah. And, and so that's, you know, voluntary taxes inspire loyalty in the state. The way things are now, people pay them the absolute minimum that's possible. Why not have a society where rates are much lower and you can have voluntary... T you actually cannot voluntarily pay taxes now. You can't go, I want to donate £10,000 to the UK government. It's not possible to do that. Right. 
you know, there's no GoFundMe. <laughs> but the uh, but 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 the evidence is when you have a more voluntary society that people feel greater loyalty to it and they mm. loyalty to it and they donate more. Anyway. Should we do the quick fire round? Sure. So we're looking for about 15 seconds per answer. Yeah. A few celebrities over the years have been caught out by HMRC for incorrect tax. Jimmy Carr, 50 Cent, Floyd Mayweather. Do you blame people like this for trying to avoid higher taxes? I blame the system. If you could get rid of one form of tax, which one would it be and why? Um, well, the one that everyone hates is stamp duty because it's a regressive tax, but I'd get rid of income tax. If you could impose one form of tax, what would it be? Land value tax. Could you just explain what that means? Uh, land value tax, it's, it's a tax on the land that you use, but I, but I would, the problem when you say land value tax is farmers all think they're gonna get penalized, but it's, it's, a, it's city center real estate. And the idea is you tax what you use uh, and you don't tax what you produce. Income tax is a tax on what you produce. And you like that because then it encourages labor rather than disincentivizes it? 100%. What's the best advice you ever received? Don't sell your house. What's the worst advice you ever received? Uh, sell your house and buy gold. <laughs> what one thing is wrong with the world that you'd like to change? There's too much government and it needs to be much, it all, all the problems start with government. There's too much of it and it needs to be much smaller. And then we'd have a much more peaceful, equal world. This podcast, YouTube channel, show, it's called disruptors. What does the word disruptive mean to you? Well, the uh, I was told I was disruptive in class at school, whereas I just thought I was entertaining. Um, but the disruptive s suggests there's a lot of people who on their LinkedIn profile will start claiming they're a disruptor. And I'll go, no, you're not. You're just a wanker. But the, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that, but just don't print it on your t-shirt or anything like that. I'm only kidding. But the, the, but the dis, um, I guess a disruptor is, is somebody who causes problems and is a general pain in the arse. <laughs> but in the case of business and disruption and tech and all that, I think they're a pain in the arse and cause problems, but in a good way. I think that's what you mean by disruptors. I'm asking for your definition, not mine. <laughs> um, send us to a couple of your books, your social platforms or wherever you want to. Well, um, my first book was called Life After the State. My most recent book is called Daylight Robbery. Um, and I wrote a book about Bitcoin, Bitcoin, the future of money. First book on Bitcoin from a recognized publisher. But if, if viewers are to leave with one thing from me, I would say, please, sign up to my Substack, which is frisbee.substack.com. F-R-I-S-B-Y. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for Thank joining the show. Thank, Thank you very, very much. much.